0: Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling, and we have a special guest, Matthew Fleischer, who is going to talk about the Old Testament case for nonviolence. Matthew Curtis Fleischer is an oil and gas attorney in Oklahoma City. He is a libertarian Christian and the author of a new book, The Old Testament Case for Nonviolence. Matthew, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: This is a topic that we've covered on our podcast uh, in in the previous year, and it has to do with violence in the Old Testament. The issue is probably not new to many Christians, but it's not unheard of to have people argue about, is, is God violent? And that's the question that you're going to, you seek to address in your, you do address in your book. You know, the argument often comes down to different methods of hermeneutics. It comes down to maybe battles with uh, what are often called the new atheists who say God is a moral tyrant and there's no way I could ever believe in that God. And I think to some extent it's because people don't really, really read and study the, the Old Testament in a deep way and compare it in context. And that's sort of a very very broad brushstroke with with your view one of the things that is great about people like you who do this work is that you can summarize this for us in a book so that we don't have to do the work um, i say that sort of tongue-in-cheek because uh you know it is important that we each do our own research uh to some extent but we don't have time to tackle all these issues so i'm really glad that you've written such a book what really uh stood out about your book is also any libertarian reading it um would tell that a libertarian has written it Um, and so I, it, I think it's really great that you've done that. It seems though that the point of your book, if I can sort of summarize this is, uh, you say it actually later in the book, we don't have to look to the new Testament to find a good, compassionate, faithful, patient, gracious, merciful, forgiving, just, and loving God. We simply need to slow down long enough to carefully read the old Testament. So the problem is God appears to be violent in the old Testament. Some Christians wrestle with this some of them don't. Some of them say, well, that's just who God is. That's just, the Bible says it. Why should I doubt it? Uh, it doesn't really bother me because I trust God. Um, why, why is it that this really probably really is bigger problem than some people assume?
1: Well, I mean, it's when you're, when you're talking about the violence of the old Testament, I mean, that, that is a core fundamental ethical issue. And so if, if you've got the new Testament that, that, clearly articulates that God is a God of love. And, and Jesus was, I consider him wholly nonviolent. Most people I think would consider him at least largely nonviolent. When you're comparing that to, to some of the depictions in the old Testament, it's, it's easy to lose sight of what the new Testament says. It's, it's easy to get confused by this violence in the new Testament. Cause you, you obviously don't associate violence with love.
0: So give us a little taste of uh, what is the overall purpose of of your book, and uh, how do you kind of approach the argument?
1: Yeah, so the book basically makes the case for two things. First and foremost, it makes the case for a nonviolent Christian ethic. And then second, it makes the case for a good, just, and loving Old Testament God, one who is not only not bloodthirsty, but who actually hates violence. And of course, anytime you're making a case for something, you kind of tend to marshal and employ any reasonable argument you can get your hands on. And I do that to an extent, but the heart of the case really revolves around two things. The first thing is context. I survey the overall biblical narrative and then place all the troubling passages within that developing story. And then I also um, place them within their proper literary and cultural and historical context. So, you know, whether whether a passage was pre-Jesus or post-Jesus matters, whether a passage is a, you know, poetic prayer by a human to God or a list of ordinances issued by God matters, whether the violence is merely recorded or described instead of actually condoned matters. Um, the cultural practices of the day matter, you know, knowing that sacrificing your child was a commonly accepted practice when um, God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac matters. So, you know, context is really a big part of the book. You know, when you step back and look at it, the overall context, the big picture sends a a pretty clear anti-violence message. Um, So the second theme that kind of drives the book forward is this idea of incremental revelation. And that's the idea that God didn't just fly by earth one day and drop off a finalized list of rules. He, you know, met humans where they were at, established a relationship, demonstrated he had their best interests in mind, developed trust, instituted some initial improvements, and then laid the work, the groundwork for his ethical ideal, which was eventually revealed in Jesus Christ. So the book is really, it is kind of a contextual explanation of what God was doing in the Old Testament from the perspective of his use of and interaction with violence if you just keep those two things in mind, context and incremental revelation, it's amazing how many problems can be alleviated.
0: I wrote this off personally as an issue worth studying uh probably over a decade ago. You know, it came up in my, you know, just reading online and stuff as a young adult Christian and I was kind of like I don't really have time to deal with that issue. It's something that was in the past. Obviously, I don't believe God's going to tell me to go kill my enemies, or um, God, God's not going to, you know, give me a vision and say, "Hey, you need to do something that's atrocious that like you'd find in the Old Testament." God clearly doesn't work that way today. It might be a way of I would have I would have put it. But you say in your book that it. It's unfortunate that the Old Testament's violence problem isn't limited to the Old Testament. And and here's a quote from the book. Why would a good and wise God allow such widespread violence to be included in the Bible, knowing it would inevitably be co-opted by fallen humans to justify further violence? So could, could you tell us a little bit more about why why the Old Testament is a problem for us today, rather than a problem that's just theological?
1: Yeah, I think I think you said it perfectly earlier. And it's it's interesting how there's, there's two kind of approaches to this issue. You know, there are those people who are so bothered by it that it's almost, uh, insurmountable hurdle. And then there are those people who, you know, can totally understand, okay, maybe God used a little bit of violence, uh, in a kind of anti-violence way when he was, you know, first, uh, getting his, his story started. And those people are not, uh, bothered by it at all. And so, I mean, whether people, you know, no one is going to explicitly say, yes, the violence I'm using or the violence I support my government using is justified by the Old Testament. No one's going to, hardly anyone's going to explicitly say that. But that's, that's the underlying current and the underlying tone. You know, there's this, in the back of everyone's mind, there's this, well, God use violence. It's okay for me to use violence. And what gets lost in that uh, analysis is, I think there's a distinction to be drawn between God's use of violence and our use of violence. So my book, you know, kind of makes a two-pronged case for a nonviolent Christian ethic. And the first nine chapters assume God did everything the Old Testament says he did, that he was guilty of all the violence that's attributed to him. And so if you, if you can make the case on those terms for nonviolence, you can make the case on any terms for nonviolence. And so that's what I attempt to do. I meet people where they're at theologically, and I meet them where they're at in terms of their conception of God, and then I I try to move them towards this nonviolent Christian ethic, which is really, I mean, when you you step back and just look at the overall biblical narrative, you have a God who creates a totally nonviolent world. There's no violence between man and God, between man and man, between man and beast. And then you have humans introducing violence to the world, and as soon as they do, God is saddened by it, he condemns it, and then he takes steps to rein it in. So if you if you take the, the violence of the Old Testament and you place it in its proper place in the overall biblical narrative, which is what we should do, even if God is using violence, even if you believe, if you take more of a literal interpretation of the violence in the Old Testament and you believe that he's he's using violence. Well, you've got to put it within that context. And so his violence is all anti violence. And then you can also bring in, you know, some people still have a little bit of a hard time seeing that, but you bring in historical context, you bring in cultural context. And once you start doing that, you can really step back and see, okay, this, this violence was not nearly as bad as what a, you know, surface level reading of it may make it appear. And it was all clearly anti-violence. And then you build all the way till Jesus, who is God's final ethical revelation. And at that point, you realize, okay, there is a distinction to be drawn here between violence God may use or may direct or may, you know, kind of have his hand in and, and how he wants us to act today. And so... To your question, the the reason it's a big deal is because you have people who miss that context. They miss that distinction. And whether or not they'll explicitly admit it, they end up kind of falling back on the Old Testament to justify their violence.
2: Matthew, what would you say is the difference between... Basically, your line of argumentation and say Greg Boyd's line of argumentation, because you you cite Crucifixion of the Warrior God, Boyd's uh, big academic work that just came out in 2017, uh, in your book. It's cited in your book, and we've discussed it here. We've interviewed Boyd on this show, actually. Um, so, I mean, that's that that's a work that's definitely making the rounds in in theological circles. So, what what distinctions would you draw there? How, how, where do you agree with Boyd? Where do you disagree? And uh, how do you tackle the argument differently?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Boyd's book and then similar books like uh, Zahn's recent book, they're almost primarily concerned with convincing the reader that God is nonviolent himself. And so my book, the primary concern is convincing the reader that God doesn't want humans using violence. You know, there's definitely some overlap there. And I do as kind of a secondary concern, and and it's actually... I mean, it's throughout the book, but my secondary concern is Boyd's concern, which is convincing people that God doesn't use violence. And Boyd would probably say that making the case for nonviolent Christian ethic requires that you conclude that God is nonviolent. And I would say that's probably where we differ. I don't totally agree with that. I, I you know, when you, you're speaking of God, of our conception of God, i probably come down on. Boyd's side of things. if If you force me to choose, I'd say, yes, Jesus is our perfect, complete picture of God, and he doesn't use violence, therefore God doesn't use violence. And so my my final two chapters basically make that same argument. But the book is primarily concerned with convincing readers that even if God does use violence, even you know no matter your method of biblical interpretation or your, conception of God, he does not want humans using violence.
0: You you mentioned something a little bit earlier about who initiates violence versus who uh, reacts against violence, and that is a distinctly libertarian way of putting things. You kind of say in the book that humans were the ones who invented it. It wasn't God who invented it, but God had to, to, in the Old Testament, God is reacting to the violence that was perpetrated by men. So you have the flood. It was a reaction against violence that became too rampant. Um, So share with our listeners a little bit about your libertarian influences in the approach that you take.
1: Well, yeah. So I I was born and raised a Christian and kind of discovered libertarianism about a decade ago or so. And when I first stumbled across it, I thought, man... The non-aggression aggression principle really sounds Christian. It sounds Christ-like. It sounds, you know, it, it just, light bulbs went off in my head. And so that's, that's really how I ended up writing this book is I thought, you know, around that same time I was kind of figuring out how can I make a better contribution to advancing God's kingdom on earth? Um, what do I, you know, what do I want to kind of sink my teeth into as a hobby and I decided, you know, I, I enjoy writing, I enjoy reading, uh, I'm passionate for liberty, which I hadn't, you know, known about before that time. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a book on Christian political philosophy with the assumption that it's going to end up basically being a case for Christian libertarianism, you know, assuming that the research kind of continues to bear that out. So yeah, in in... Doing this, the Old Testament was going to be basically just a chapter in that book. And then it just kind of blew up and I had uh, what I considered too much good stuff and too much to say about it. So I turned it into its own book. So I'm still marching in that direction um, towards the political philosophy book. In my research for the book and just all the study I've done on Christianity and violence and, and Christian theology, it's really solidified my libertarianism. I mean, it's when your libertarianism is based in the non-aggression principle, and then you sit down and you look at how radically non-violent Jesus was. It's really hard um, to be anything other than libertarian in my mind. You know, I mean, it's I can't. There's a quote out there I can't remember who said it, but something to the effect of Jesus's ethics are so crazy they almost have to be true. And I and I totally agree with that. You know, it's it's crazy that Jesus would not force someone else to feed a hungry person, but, but he didn't, you know, and man, I'd love to be able to, to say, yep, Jesus and God, they want us to, you know, even have a minimum, uh, safety net, but there's just no evidence for that. I mean, everything that talks about taking care of the poor in the new Testament is all personal. It's all within the, the church community. So, it's all this research has really kind of solidified my libertarianism
0: yeah it's it's almost like uh there's no way on earth human humans would come up with, let's not be violent anymore. I mean, that was the problem God sought to address largely in the Old Testament, which you kind of talk about, is that was God's reacting to it. Like, it was the initiation of force that God doesn't do. Uh, but in this case, it's reactive. You know, I would add to your comment about the the whole uh, social safety net and things like that, you know, if there's a way to do it without the use of force um, and do it nonviolently, then that is the ultimate way to accomplish it. And that's the problem with most people who are or you know, we would say our friends on the left, uh, Christian friends on the left, who are by and large pacifists, who believe in nonviolence, somehow making you know, they make a an excuse for the state to exert violence. And you even talk about not that specifically in your book, but you do talk about the the direction God is taking um, Israel. God made an agreement with Israel, uh, a covenant and yet god's desire was not for them to become more nationalistic and more concentration of power but less power in the hands of the elite and more economic benefit to the common person
1: yeah that's exactly right i mean his the way he structured old testament israel the nation of of israel is was radically progressive for the time it was radically egalitarian and And that's another thing that gets missed is when you just when you compare God's laws and the structure of the Old Testament nation of Israel to today, well, yeah, it looks horrible. I mean, it it, it falls far short of where we're at today. But that's because he did it back then, and when we've been able to build off of it and and come so much farther. but but you can attribute the principles, to what God was doing with Israel in the Old Testament and so for for example you know the the eye for an eye law you know we see that today and think man how barbaric eye for an eye well in its in its time it was actually a limitation on violence it was a means of restricting vengeance legal vengeance to only an eye for an eye
0: right because so, back then and, retaliation was more about ratcheting it up and and kind of one upping the violence in retaliation
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And in almost any area of Israel's life, you can you can look at what God did and compare it to the other surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures. And, you know, it's it's not a, a perfect improvement in every area, but in most areas, there's noticeable significant improvement.
0: Yeah. So you're saying that compared to other uh, A&E, ancient Near East cultures, uh, the Mosaic Law's punishments are actually far more humane. They pushed uh, humanity in a different direction, or in a in a more progressive direction, I should say. Um, another another way you also put it is God. You call God. I think you maybe maybe this is my summary of your your phrase. An incremental ethicist, in that uh, God is teaching us something to lead us somewhere.
1: Yes, exactly. So I employ the term incremental revelation in the book, and that's just the notion that you know, the, the Bible isn't a constitution. It's not an encyclopedia. It's, it's a narrative. And so God didn't fly by earth one day and, and drop off this finalized, complete, uh, list of ethical rules. Um, instead he, you know, met mankind where it was at. He established a relationship. He proved that he had their best interests in mind. He developed trust he instituted some initial improvements, and then, you know, generally laid the foundation for his, you know, grand finale of the uh, of his ethical revelation, which was Jesus Christ. And so, again, I mean, you can see that with the criminal punishments, they're they're more restrained. Uh, he institutes revolutionary legal protections for widows and orphans and even slaves. He institutes a wholly different warfare po- policy. You know, it's, it's hard to read his warfare instructions in Deuteronomy and not be kind of offended by them today. But you've got to compare that to, to what else was going on back then and everyone else's warfare policies were basically anything goes. And so the restrictions God imposed on Israel, you know, if, if they're engaged in battle with city or nation outside of the promised land, they've got to first offer peace. And, you know, if after they win the battle, they can only do certain things with the spoils of war, you know, all of those were restrictions on warfare. They were, you know, they were placing Israel on the right path, on a path that led back to nonviolence.
0: Many of our progressive friends on the left will say that libertarians and many evangelicals that aren't on their side, they read the Bible more too individualistically. Like, everything applies to me, the individual, but we can't apply that to social groups or nations. It does seem to be that God cares about how how leaders and rulers treat those who are... Uh, within their domain, uh, I guess you could say their kingdoms, and so that God does care about that. I mean, you you quoted uh, Chuck Gutenson in uh, Christians and the Common Good, and you know his book also makes the argument that God cares about how governments treat their citizens, and therefore that's why the Christian view of social justice, etc., uh, applies. What what is your typical response to those those angles on the on the issue of how to treat others?
1: Well, first, one of Christianity's largest contributions to ethics, especially Western ethics, is that the individual matters. I mean, that is that was Jesus's maybe most revolutionary ethical pronouncement. Hey, the individual matters. Every single individual matters. Ethics, in my mind, I mean it it occurs on an individual level. You know, the the unit of measurement in ethics is individuals. Now I agree with our friends on the left who say, yes, but God cares how government treats their citizens. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's why he doesn't even want government using aggression against them. And yes, I also agree with them that community is extremely important. The collective is extremely important, but if it's going to be the embodiment of God's kingdom, it's got to be voluntary. If it's not voluntary, it's, it's some form of prison basically, you know, and that's, that's not true community. And so, yes, community matters big time. I mean, we were made for community. We were made for relationships. But when you're talking about enforcing earthly justice, it has to occur on the individual level. I mean, we are individual units. And when you lose sight of that, I mean, it quickly de-evolves into mob rule, basically. You cannot get around theft by claiming that it's not one individual taking it from another individual. It's you know, one person's right hand taking it from their left hand. We we're, we're not hands, we're individuals.
2: Yeah, you know, that is something that you know we encounter a lot in I, I think just as, as libertarians in general, not just specifically Christian libertarians, but libertarians in general we encounter this argument all the time. So people will say things like, uh, oh well, it's okay to w- w- levy these taxes on that corporation because corporations aren't people. Uh, but I mean that's 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 such that that's such a, a sociological bait and switch. I mean corporations are just collections of individuals, right? And that's what societies are, we're just collections of individuals. So Yeah,
0: by their logic, uh, the government is not representative of the people either.
2: Yeah. And I mean there when we're talking theology to an extent um, th- th- there is a difference in the sense that the church in some metaphysical supernatural sense is bound together in a, in a collective with Christ. We're joined with Christ. But that doesn't erase our individuality. I would say it, it accents it. Uh, but typically what people uh, on the left are trying to do is they're trying to erase individuality into the collective and use that to sort of paper over uh, things like taxation. But that can also be used to paper over things like war. Uh, and, and another large-scale uh, sins. What, what, what do you think of that? Yeah,
1: I, I totally agree with that. You said that very well. One of my pet peeves is the, the phrase, the common good, at least how it's how it's employed today. The problem with the the notion of the common good in America today is it's really just a cover for being able to do to some individuals what you couldn't do to them otherwise. And so should we all promote the common good absolutely 100% that's that's a massive part of christian ethics but when you're saying the common good justifies stealing or war or these other things that are clearly wrong you've you've corrupted the notion of the common good it really is it's it's this psychological or philosophical way to to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes and transform what is one individual doing something to another individual as that individual doing something to himself. You know, I have a really hard time uh, buying that. That's actually one of the things that, you know, studying libertarianism has has brought to light for me. You know, you don't hear that type of thing unless you're in libertarian circles, you know, unless you're reading Rothbard and Mises and, and guys like that. I mean, it's, Libertarians are very good at, at drawing that line and saying and and being able to kind of step back and, and look at what's actually happening and analyze it in a commonsensical, you know, individual versus individual sense. And it's the same thing with economics. You know, the, to me, the beauty of Austrian economics is it's this individual analysis of economics. What's good for an individual economically is good for the nation. And you can't say, well, a nation can can spend its way out of debt in ways that individuals can't. I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me, you know, and I'm and I'm still waiting for someone to to explain that to me in a way that that makes sense.
0: Right, that doesn't use fancy theorems that confuse everybody they're trying to convince.
1: Yeah, that exactly. That doesn't use, you know, econometrics that's based all on on mathematical models that you can feed in whatever parameters you want.
0: Yeah, right. So you know, you you said that there's a, a lot of beauty to the Austrian economic tradition and and libertarianism in general, libertarian philosophy. What are some things you know on this on this program? We often try to as as often as possible talk specifically about where the Bible supports our position, not in a way that's like, oh hey, well let's go find ways to be supported in our position. But I mean, we've all come to this from different angles, and you've you've mentioned your story a, a little bit of being becoming a libertarian. So and you've studied this you said it kind of turned into a new project for you to provide a case for libertarianism from from the scriptures so give us a little taste of that like what are the, some of the foundational even passages concepts principles that you see in the scriptures that bolster your belief that the non-aggression principle is just dead on correct and we really have to like you know, live by that
1: first off i would say i mean you have jesus declaring that The greatest command in terms of how we interact with each other is to love each other. And then he, you know, all other commands basically just define that command. They get more specific. And then you have him phrasing that in terms of the golden rule as well. And so when I look at the golden rule and I say, okay, how can I, let's, let's say we're going to take the golden rule and deductively turn it into a political philosophy. Well, it would basically be the non-aggression principle. It was, hey, I don't want people, you know, by definition, I don't want people using aggression against me. That's what aggression is. It's unwanted force. And so if I don't want someone to force me to pay for a war I disagree with, I shouldn't force other people to pay for wars they may disagree with. And the same thing holds for uh, baking cakes. You know, if, if I don't want someone to force me to bake a cake for a certain person or to forcefully prevent me from baking a cake for a certain person, well, then I shouldn't ask government to use force against someone else who's who does or does not want to bake a cake for somebody else. So, I mean, it, it really is just politics by the golden rule, the non-aggression principle. And, you know, at a minimum, the heart of Christian ethics is the golden rule. So that would be the first thing I would say. The next thing I would say is you've got to look at and get into the different roles in Scripture for government and for the church. I'm still working through a lot of this stuff myself, but where I'm at right now, Scripture's pretty clear that government exists to use the sword. So there is is a role for government, absolutely. And it exists to use the sword basically to maintain order. And allow the church to fulfill its separate role and its separate role is to be salt and light and and we be salt and light by embodying god's kingdom not by forcing it on other people so you know those are kind of the two main the two main arguments and i mean there's a ton of stuff that that falls underneath that you've got i mean you've got explicit statements in the bible that say um hey don't don't even show favoritism to the poor you know i mean that's a equality before the law argument it is hey treat everyone equally whether they're baroque or they're bill gates and so those are kind of the two primary primary arguments i see for um the case for libertarianism of course there's a lot of ways to spin it, but but that's it.
0: So you don't think a preferential option for the poor is a biblical concept, or is it just con- is it contextualized by some of these other uh, things that you mentioned?
1: Well, I think so. I think a preferential right for the poor is a biblical concept. There's no doubt about it that God is extremely concerned about the poor and wants us to um, make helping them a central part of our lives. What I what I don't think is a biblical concept is employing government to accomplish that. Again, Jesus' Jesus's ethics were so crazy, they have to be real. I mean, he, he rejected all political power. He had the temptation from Satan when he offered him all the power of all the kingdoms in the world, he rejected it. Uh, when the mob wanted to force him to be a typical earthly king, he ran from them. Uh, when he pronounced his kingship he rode in on a donkey not a war horse i mean when his you know disciples were arguing over who uh, will be the greatest in his kingdom he told them not to lord it over him like the rulers of the gentiles do i mean the list just goes on and on and on and so the only the only way you get around that is to start moving in stuff outside of the bible into your analysis of what government should do and what more specifically what we should use government for And so I think there's a massive distinction to be drawn between, you know, what type of government or or what should government do and then what should Christians focus their efforts on doing. And, you know, another thing I'd throw on there is when, when you have government providing for the poor and it being the primary cultural or social means of doing so, who gets the credit for that? It is not God. It's humans. Humans get the credit for that. And so, if we exist to bear witness to God's kingdom as a foretaste of it, uh, you know, and as a sign pointing to it, having government take care of, of the poor is not pointing towards God's kingdom. It is saying, hey, man, you know, it, it sends this implicit message that man can maybe even, you know, solve most of their own problems. You know, we just need the right people in power, and we just need government to use power correctly. And that's, to me, that's not a biblical argument. You know, I'm— um, 100% agree, helping the poor is biblical, absolutely, 100% agree, but I just can't, I can't get it from there to, I can use governmental force, i.e. violence, i.e. aggression, to accomplish it.
0: Well, and it runs into the problem of empire, which the Bible is clearly against the accumulation of power by kings and when You read the prophets and you see how the gospels portray Jesus as counter revolutionary. It's not just counter revolutionary, it's counter, it's political and it's political in an anti Rome sense. And so, I yeah, I love what you're saying there because it's it really the problem runs into more imperialism when you try to seek the government to endorse your policy prescriptions.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the one of the things I touch on in the book is, you know, one of the ways Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, i.e. one of the ways he he kind of perfected God's ethical ideal was by denationalizing God's followers. You know, he he created a a theocratic nation in the Old Testament and Jesus popped up and denationalized him. And so even if you think that, even if you take a more literal approach to interpreting the violence of the Old Testament and you think that you know, God was behind most of what was attributed to him. He only ever condoned violence in the Old Testament within that nationalistic structure. I mean, Israel was a nation that that had laws it needed to enforce. It had borders it needed to protect. You know, it had a use for violence. Well, when God trans or when Jesus transformed the transforms God's followers from a nation into the you know international, um, transnational. Nonviolent church, all those reasons, all those justifications for violence in the Old Testament fall away. They, I mean, we are not a nation. We don't have laws to impose. We don't have borders to defend, and so it's there. I, and actually, I think that's one of the things libertarians will probably like most about my book is there's a pretty strong anti-nationalism um, theme running through it. You know, and it's it's not just Trump-like nationalism that that I think is uh, contra-biblical. It's it's any type of Nationalism, whether it's Obama-like nationalism or Bush-like nationalism or Trump-like nationalism,
2: to backtrack a little here, Matthew. You know, you talked about the non-aggression principle. We talk about the non-aggression principle all the time uh, here at LCI. Now, one of the things that's really been fascinating to me, uh, in it, and and not in a good way, is this trend in libertarianism lately. Uh, to eschew the non-aggression principle. There's a lot of libertarians saying we don't need the NAP. NAP. Some even say the NAP is stupid. Uh, And so, I mean, whenever I see this, I'm like, okay, well, what do they want to replace it with? And it's kind of hard to weed it out, but ultimately it comes down to a form of utilitarianism. Have you encountered a lot of uh, people advancing that argument? And what would you say in response to it? Yeah, so I,
1: I do encounter that quite a bit. And to me, to me, the issue is pretty black or white, you know, if you either comply with the non-aggression principle or you don't, and if you don't, you're just on a slippery slope to being, to being where we're at today, which is government, uh, controls just about everything and, and has rules and regulations that apply to just about every aspect of life. So that's, to me, that's the problem with, you know, fallen humans are prone to, to just accumulate power and to take whatever power they've been given, whether it's an institution or an individual or whatever, and just do whatever they can to grow it. And so once you cross that line and say, okay, a little bit of aggression is okay, you know, it for good purposes, we'll just have a little bit of aggression to feed the poor or to feed the hungry. Well, the problem with that is it never gets used that way. You know, we're not... It was Madison or somebody who said, you know, if we were all angels, we wouldn't need government. Well, amen. I mean, that's that's the that's the difference there is fallen humans have proven themselves incapable of using a little bit of aggression for a net positive good. It, it always ends up being used to exploit and to make some people rich at other people's expense and power corrupts, you know, and that we, we see that all the time everywhere. I mean, you know, when, when these news stories keep coming out about this person, you know, had an affair with this person, or this person was caught embezzling money, or this person turned out to, to be, you know, somebody other than who we thought they were. Anytime those people are in power, I'm never surprised. I mean, power corrupts. It is, you know, it's impossible to fight that, you know, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can keep it in check, but the, the best thing to do is to just reject power and, that's another thing i think you'll you'll see throughout the new testament and that is jesus's aversion to power he didn't he didn't want that power and and he was perfect and he was all knowing and he was all powerful but he didn't want to mess with earthly power
0: so Matthew tell us a little bit about what's up next for you it's, uh you kind of mentioned that you were writing at least one more book uh give us a little bit more of uh, a sneak peek if you will on what what your progress is there and then how can our listeners reach you online where can they find you
1: the second book I'm, I'm still marching towards the the book I originally sat down to write which is going to be um basically the Christian case for libertarianism and I don't think I'll get there until book three Book two is basically going to be the New Testament case for nonviolence, and it's going to dive into analyzing Jesus's teachings and life a little more closely. It's going to address, you know, some of the passages that are kind of pulled out of context and used to justify violence, like the go buy a sword and the temple clearing and stuff like that. And it's also going to kind of dive into the difference between the scriptural roles for government and for the church And how they kind of interact and interplay. And then in the final book, um, I expect to make kind of a more direct case for Christian libertarianism. And then in terms of uh, where people can find me, I've got a website, MatthewCurtisFleischer.com. And that's probably um, the best place to find me. I'm on Facebook as well. I'm on Twitter at MatthewCurtisF. And that's it.
0: Well, thank you for being a guest on our show. We uh, want to uh, applaud you for uh, making such a case for nonviolence in the Old Testament, which is a nice—it's it, a pretty bold claim to accomplish what you have. We definitely encourage listeners to to go purchase your book and reach out if they have any questions or uh, want to promote your book as well. Our show notes page for this for this episode will also contain a link to your book that, where you can purchase it on Amazon. So, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for being here with us.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. I enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us by email, you can do so at podcast at com. You can find us on Twitter at LCI Official. You can find us on Facebook and, of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. If you like what LCI is doing, you can feel free to donate. And if you go to our website, there's a donate button at the top. And we take any amount you want to give to us. Because what we do with that is we create great content for you to listen to, to read, and enjoy in a variety of ways. So libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horne. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.